Hello, and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Dean Bubbly, founder and director of Disruptive Analysis. Dean is an independent technology industry analyst, futurist, speaker, and consultant with over 25 years of experience. In this interview, Dean gives us his unfiltered views on Edge, IoT, 5G, their intersection with the telecoms industry, and why the future is going to be a lot messier than you think. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and Zenlayer. The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is NetFoundry. What do IoT apps, edge compute, and edge data centers have in common? They need simple, secure networking. Unfortunately, SD-WAN and VPN are square pegs in round holes. NetFoundry solves the headache, providing software-only, zero-trust networking embeddable in any device or app. Learn more at netfoundry.io. And now, please enjoy this interview between Dean Bubbly, founder and director of Disruptive Analysis, and your host, Matt Trefiro. Hi, this is Matt Trefiro, CMO of Edge Infrastructure Company Vapor.io and co-chair of the Linux Foundation's State of the Edge project. Today, I'm here with Dean Bubbly, founder and director of Disruptive Analysis, an independent technology industry analysis consulting firm. We're going to talk about Dean's role as an industry analyst, often a contrarian one, and macro trends in edge computing, AI, IoT, private networks, 5G, and everything else. Hey, Dean, how are you doing today? Really good. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, so I've really been looking forward to this because you and I, you know, we started out sparring on Twitter, which is difficult for me. I think. Well, it's it's often fun and sometimes devolves into nonsense, which our arguments may have. But I certainly gained respect for you in our sparring because you've clearly done your homework, and I've come to consider you part of the, you know, the edge OG, the original gangsters. <laughs> Because, you. you know, you think two years ago, which was like, well, 2018, when I started this Day of the Edge report, and I'd just been in this industry for about a year and a half, there were very few people that were talking accurately about edge computing. That's changed a lot. So I want to cover all these things. But before we get into edge computing and stuff, I have a burning question, which is, where did you get the name Disruptive Dean? Ah, well, Disruptive Analysis, I, I called my company when I set it up in 2002. And really, I, I, I decided to do my own show and uh, um, I thought well what's my reputation and at the time I was fairly contrarian and that was at the time um, not that long after uh, Clayton Christensen had, had talked about disruptive innovations and, and so on so uh, it was still quite a fresh term and I remember the first time I announced it I was in a I think it was um, an analyst event run by Cisco and every, everyone knew that I'd, I'd worked in another role and then started my own company we didn't know what, what it was called and so I put my hand up and said, uh, oh, yeah, this is uh, Dean Bubbly from Disruptive Analysis. And half the room turned around and either, I can't remember if I either applauded it or I got a thumbs up of everyone nodding in it. Yeah, that makes sense. Type of it. it does. It does. It actually fits you really well. And either the, the brand has grown to conform to you or you've grown to conform to the brand. But it's very, it's very consistent at this point. So I'm really a fan. So how, how did you even get into technology? I mean, what's your background there? 
Well, to be honest, my, my original background in technology came from the fact that my mother used to program mainframes in Fortran in the 1960s. So I actually grew up. That, that is really cool. I, I grew up at one point, I think we had a terminal for the one of the UK government department mainframes. We had a terminal at home and at various points with various bits of, of computing gear around the house. I think from the age of about four, we had more computers than people in the house. And so that turned into an interest in technology. And I, I didn't, I actually studied physics rather than computing. But then I ended up at my first job as a um, strategy consulting, uh, focusing on telecoms networks, and got dropped right into the deep end because I had various uh, clients at the time. What time frame was this? Would have been around about 1992, I think. Okay, so, so the, the internet was mostly about email and academia. I, I remember doing a project in, I think, 1994 for a client um, that was an online service provider that wanted to compete with CompuServe. And in doing the research for it, <laughs> um, we actually came to our client and said, have you heard of this internet thing? There's this thing called the web that's just been invented. <laughs> we think you should, you should probably check it out. <laughs> so uh, I definitely recall that. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And where did you first intersect with edge computing? Hmm, that's an interesting one. I think probably the, I've probably been hearing about it for a while, whether it was called edge computing or not, probably about 10 years ago. And I was talking about local breakout for mobile networks, particularly with small cells, and the idea that you'd need to have some sort of core network function out to what we now think of as the edge, but could be potentially integrated into a small cell. And then also, I think I had a couple of the early presentations from Etsy when they were setting up the MEC project as part of NF, the Network Functional Virtualization work. And I think I think the first time I actually wrote about it in any real depth was probably just over three years ago when Amazon bought Whole Foods. And I speculated that you know, 700... Like data centers on the roof or exactly, in the parking lot. Exactly, 700 yeah. retail outlets you know, with lots of electricity and fiber might be a good good option. Yeah, that's great. And, you know, you've had some time to evolve your thinking about edge and the industry has certainly caught up with a fraction of its hype. What is your pers- your overarching perspective on edge now? My main perspective is that I think that latency is perhaps not the be all and end all we thought it was initially. And that actually it's things like data sovereignty, it's security and control by enterprise, and this idea of interconnection is more important than I think that people thought it was uh, a few years ago. The other thing, I'm seeing slow convergence of the sort of views of different edge worlds from the cloud and data center world and the telecoms world and up to a point in the IoT and device world, although I still find people talk across each other quite a lot. Um, The the one thing I often have a conversation uh, with people about for the first time on Edge is trying to calibrate where they are on the scale of things. And I say that Edge often has maybe nine orders of magnitude. And I've spoken to people who who think of Edge as a a megawatt data center uh, in a tier three city, down to other people who think it's a milliwatt processor on a chip on a sensor. Uh, And so I'm like, right, you've got nine orders of magnitude, all of which people think that that's the Edge. So, so how do you how do you navigate that? That's a good question. I suppose it depends who I'm talking to. And first, the first thing is asking that question and find out which order of magnitude or magnitudes apply to a given conversation. And if I'm talking to a, a sensor vendor or a, a, a gateway vendor, that's very different to someone who's doing edge data centers. And it's different, again, to uh, someone in the mobile and telecoms industry, where there's often a perception that edge is, it, it belongs inside a 5G network, for example. Yeah. 
there's a lot to unpack in all that. We could spend the the bulk of the hour talking about all this. So maybe maybe let's let's tease apart some of those threads. So the first thing you said was maybe it's not latency that matters. And, and I want to add that you know latency is often used as a proxy for to inclusive of jitter. And just for the benefit of our our listeners, the whole benefit of low latency edge computing is to have a discrete and predictable response time. And latency and jitter, which is a function of network hops and distance, affect that. But your statement was that may not be the most important thing. It's sort of the thing that most people talk about. So why why are these other things important? Can we talk about each of those? You mentioned security and some other things. Sure. Well, first off, on the time and response time, what I'd say is that there's a bit of a bifurcation that I'm seeing that for a lot of applications, there is a desire for less latency. But here we're maybe say talking about going from you know, 100 milliseconds down to 30 or maybe 20. Right. Or you're talking microseconds. And again, this is orders of magnitude again. And so in a factory environment, it may well be microseconds that matter or even in a car, you know, how fast you can apply the brakes. Or, so, or in a 5G network yeah. in a 7.2 split. Yeah. And, and so, so then the question is, that bit in the middle, the sort of one to 10 milliseconds that everyone gets so excited about, is that really the most important bucket? If, you, if I'm going one to 10, 10 to 100, 100 to 1,000, or below that you know, in terms of microseconds, where is the value in those orders of magnitude? And I'm not convinced that that is where the near-term value for edge computers, um, because I think a lot of application developers know that the users will have lots of different network connections, some will be on cellular, some will be on Wi-Fi, some will be on fiber, multiple hops, different interconnection points. And so as long as this year's latency is better than last year's latency and was a trajectory, then, then that's all good. I don't see this sudden discontinuous jump to we're all using one millisecond round trip robots and Reality. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I think that's really true too. And it's it's interesting that you know. So the evolution of you know my my journey in understanding what's going to happen first with Edge, I've come to a very similar conclusion that latency is important and reducing latency is important. But you're right. This like these absolute discrete latencies have very limited use cases, and a lot depends on that last mile network, which you know, and certainly in the wireless world is still being built out. You know, the modem handshake on a on an LTE network is. <laughs> it's already yeah. going to take you 10 milliseconds plus. And then you add in yeah, it, what happens indoors over someone else's indoor wireless or it's Wi-Fi. You've got delays in the device. So, so in fact, you and I have been cited in the same article about video conferencing, I noticed. And and that's a yeah, you know, we're on the other side of the planet here. So frankly, the main late, latency is, is fixed. It's the speed of light between where I am in London and, and where you are. Yeah. Yeah. And, and any amount of local breakout might help here and there. But fundamentally, it's the planet. Yeah, well, and, and the, the way that I tend to explain this to people uh, that are coming at it fresh is to say that the biggest change that I see in the next decade or what I call the third act of the internet is we're moving from a world where it's primarily humans talking to machines, or I guess in this case, humans talking to humans over a video conference to machines talking to machines. And you're right, there are these orders of magnitude. You know, machines, you know, 100 milliseconds is glacial, yes. right? I mean, I could do a lot of, a lot of floating point operations in 100 milliseconds. So along my journey, one of the things that I've become fascinated with is how important the network is. And you mentioned interconnection, and I'm wondering if you could, you could talk a little bit about interconnection. Yeah, I mean, interconnection is actually something I've been spending a lot of time on recently with, with some work that I've been doing looking at internet peering, uh, but also the, in telecoms interconnection as well. And there's multiple different interconnection points. So 
the the voice and video that we have going between us at the moment will almost certainly transit multiple different access networks, service uh, service providers, internet backbone providers, peering points. So that is a fundamental characteristic of most applications which are not single network resident. And I think that in particular... What are some examples of those? Of a single network application. That might be where a carrier works with a particular application provider. So let's say in the UK, BT has a contract to run the public safety, what's called the emergency services network. And so in that case, it's their infrastructure pretty much end to end. Whereas at the moment, we're having a conversation on you're on your access provider, I'm on my access provider, and we've got who knows what in between us. And imagine from from an edge compute point of view, imagine that we were actually in the same city, but we wanted to play some virtual reality game or, or something like that. The probability that you and I will both be on the same mobile network, even if it was 5G, would be 30% or lower. I would be on carrier A, you'd be on carrier B. And then the question is, whilst we might individually have the polygon rendering for that game done on the edge in carrier A's network and carrier B's network, the gameplay, we're hitting a ball between each other or whatever it is, will interconnect somewhere deep back in the network, unless there is some sort of local peering or local interconnect or shared local edge facility. That, to my mind, is is a real obstacle for a lot of the the edge use cases that we talk about. There's no way that every connected car is going to be on the same network. You're going to have this issue of not even knowing what network you connect to. So if you buy a car, do you know what what network it's connected to? Probably not. If you're, uh, I don't know, you invite the elevator engineer into your building to fix the elevator and they've got an AR headset, what network is it on? Nobody knows. And so who's edge compute? How do you get to it? There's so many unknowns. And unless you have that in your mind and think of all the different interconnection scenarios and multi-network scenarios that might occur, you've got a problem uh, because all of the, the, you know, while bits of the compute and certain workloads might be done locally, other things, you know, including where the analytics is done, they've got a machine vision algorithm running on a cloud somewhere, um, they've got data storage somewhere else, they've got security provider, you know, all of the microservices, they're going to be littered all around the sort of cloudscape. And again, then it's a case of how it's less about the physical distance and more about the minimizing the number of hops. And to do that, you, you, they all need to meet somewhere convenient. Yeah. And there needs to be probably software-based interconnection to handle those, especially you mentioned mobile things in motion. So an interesting topic that directly intersects this is what you mentioned right at the beginning of the interview, which was, you know, 10 years ago, you wrote about local, local breakout. And I think local breakout is still a relatively unknown concept outside of the, the folks that, you know, spend time with the GSMA and Etsy and all that. Can you help our audience understand what local breakout is, how the world of wireless works prior to local breakout and why it's so important for edge computing. Sure. Right. Let's start off with with something which works differently. Let's talk about Wi-Fi. If you're listening to this on a laptop or on a phone connected to Wi-Fi, your Wi-Fi will connect to your ISP, which will go to the local either central office or exchange, you know, depending on on which part of the world you're in and what you call it. And it will then be sent as fast as possible to the nearest internet exchange point. 
Right. Which could be hundreds or thousands of miles away. It might be, but there's no, you know, there's no incentive or very little incentive for a cable company or a, a fixed network operator to put your traffic through their transport and core network and out the other side to the internet. They want to dump it to the internet as fast as possible. Apart from anything else, it means it doesn't clog up their transport network. It's someone else's problem. Yeah. And the same thing if you're downloading movies on Netflix or and data's coming the other way, yeah, it's in your ISP's interest to let Netflix deal with that problem as, as soon into the network as possible. So whether it's sort of local breakout or break in, there's an incentive with Wi-Fi and home broadband to get it off the network onto someone else's network. Now, cellular, historically, all of the data traffic has gone back into the core of the network where there are various functions around policy, around charging, and then perhaps just one or two links between the cellular network and the the public internet and one or two peering points varies a bit depending which country you're in but it essentially means that in even in parts of the u.s your your data traffic on mobile may go all the way from california to virginia before hitting the public internet um, and then perhaps coming yeah, straight back. you do a trace route on your mobile phone and it's pretty astounding so the idea of local breakout is can it, yeah, particularly if you've got something like a small cell and i really care about latency can I do what Wi-Fi does, which is essentially dump the traffic to the internet straight away? And then you run into this political problem, perhaps regulatory problem, that that means if I'm going to dump the traffic from a small cell to the internet as fast as possible, I still need to work out how to charge for it, which means I need to have... Well, also how to do lawful intercept and a bunch exactly. of other important things. So I need to have a bunch of sort of core network functions pushed out into the network down as close as possible to, in this case, a small cell or, or a, a local. Yeah, where historically they've never been. They've all been centralized for economy reasons and convenience reasons. Well, and, yeah. and, and so you could argue that local breakout was the original mobile use case for edge compute because the only way that you would be able to break that out is to have that control function at the edge. Yeah, uh, and actually, I I I I think if I recall correctly, this was one of the reasons for network function virtualizations because you wouldn't want to have a hardware EPC at all of those breakout points. You'd ideally want to do it in software, and you'd ideally want to do it at the edge. And I think that there's a separate thing here, which is when you talk to mobile networks, they're very keen to position edge computing and what they call MEC, multi-access edge computing, originally mobile edge computing, as a customer-facing cloud edge service for developers or content providers. Whereas actually, the number one use case of a a telecom operator's edge is for its own internal network functions. And whether that's for the core network function that it's running at the edge, or increasingly now we know with uh, open uh, radio network functions, so the anchor tenant of a telco's edge compute is the telco itself. And then if there's anything left over, then they can think about selling it to customers. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, and actually, you know, it's interesting because that's sort of meta. And you're right. Most Many people don't understand that. That one use of edge computing is actually to support the infrastructure for edge computing itself. Yes. And when you think about the, you know, the, the wireless industry, historically, you know, you go buy a bunch of appliances from Ericsson or Nokia, and you tend to buy the same brand Radiohead with the same brand, whatever. And that, that created these, you know, these incredible lock-ins and, the, and inconvenience, right? I mean, inside every one of these appliances is probably an Intel server that's capable of running many network functions, not just the one for that 
that unit. And so the idea of pulling all that off and putting it into software and running it on, you know, what you would think of traditional data center servers is kind of an obvious, but has been a time-consuming approach for a whole lot of reasons, some of them political. Yeah. And, and so you've got the, the main use case is running the network. Then there's a couple of other very sort of, I'll call them network adjacent functions. So there's obviously a content delivery network. So having a CDN node running on the edge makes makes sense for all sorts of reasons. And right. Well, and having it in a rack right next to the virtualized network functions makes even more sense. And also security functions as well. Yeah, there's various there's various things like anti DDoS that you may want to have out of the edge, for instance. So, so but again, that's sort of a, a network internal or a, a network adjacent function. But in terms of running a game or I don't know a financial transaction application or a robot controller for a factory, that's in a way secondary and tertiary. Even if the marketing people like to talk about it first. Yeah, well, and, and it's it's also interesting that, you know, you, you started out with the the controversial statement, and I appreciate the controversy, of maybe it's latency that doesn't matter. And I think you're right. When you're looking at those other larger applications that we most think about, latency probably isn't the first thing. It's probably network interconnection. But when you look at the telco network and its, and its function virtualization, the discrete latency is really important. I mean, the eSIPRI the link, which oh, yeah. splits the radio head and the baseband unit, has to be 75 microseconds in almost all cases. Sometimes, you know, you buy the same radio head from the same vendor, you get to 20, but that's 15 kilometers. Yeah. Which means you have to have something that looks like a data center. Yes. Certainly racks of servers within 15 kilometers of every radio head, every remote radio head. Yeah. But I mean, you could equally argue that that's like saying normally you have an equipment shelter within 50 meters today. Well, that's true. But you know what's interesting is because the, the environmental requirements for running racks of servers are very different than the environmental requirements of running a traditional telco appliance. And for a lot of reasons, one of them is just, you know, efficiencies like in cooling and, and things like that and airflow and hot aisles and cold aisles, things that, that the telcos have, have have not widely adopted. The other thing is, and, and this is, I'm actually really interested in your opinion on this, and I've formed this opinion from talking to a lot of not only peers and analysts, but also the telcos, is that as much as all the telcos, you know, chest thump about how they're all building out their 5G networks, it's incredibly expensive. And the CFO's office has a very different opinion than the marketing team's office. Mm-hmm. And what I'm seeing, or what I see as a really big opportunity is shared infrastructure. Because the economics of shared infrastructure is so compelling. If you have to build something that looks like a data center because you want to put you know, eight kilowatts of equipment in some location uh, versus leasing a rack in someone else's data center in a similar adjacent location, much more economic to do that. Much more economic to use somebody else's fiber, much more economic potentially to use someone else's small cells. So how, how talk to me about, about shared infrastructure and telcos. I mean, sh- shared infrastructure occurs at multiple different levels, and it also varies historically around the world. So where I am in the UK, the four main mobile operators actually share in groups of two a lot of their physical well, the actual physical towers and I think some of the backhaul connections. And in Nordic markets, that's also pretty common. And I know that the Chinese operators are doing so. Well, in the US, you've got companies like Crown Castle that own lots of macro towers, but also have been buying up a lot of fiber. And those are both shared infrastructure. Yeah. And so you've got shared, there's shared sort of passive infrastructure. So that's like the physical metal towers. That's a good way of putting it. You've got, the, and you've got perhaps the power supplies, 
fiber backhaul in some cases. There's a bunch of confusing acronyms that the mobile industry uses called MORAN, which is Multiple Operator Radio Network, MOCAN, Multiple Operator Core Network, and there's a couple of others as well, to talk about the different styles of infrastructure sharing. And they come with sort of different implications for security, different implications from a regulatory point of view in competition authorities. There's always a bit of a tension in most governments between competition authorities on one hand, who'd love to see lots of independent physical infrastructure, and the sort of people who, who are trying to do the national broadband plan who are saying, well, share if you can and, and get it to everyone, get broadband to everyone. And so what you end up with in some countries is, for example, again, you know, here in the UK, there's a new thing called the shared rural network, which essentially has been the government telling the four mobile carriers, if you improve your land area coverage of the UK with, in this case, 4G, not 5G, and you share towers, we will put this amount of money in to help you. Yeah. And so it's like subs it's a subsidized shared network. But then in other markets, yeah, you've got the tower companies who increasingly are, are doing fiber and they're also doing increasingly they're buying up assets for in-building coverage. In-building is really interesting because it tends to be inherently shared. Whether that is a distributed antenna system or whether it's you know, actually Wi-Fi uh, for things like offload the in-building environment becomes even more important in 5G era because a lot of the 5G high-performance doesn't, go through, walls. doesn't <laughs> go through walls. Yeah. You need, and then the question, then you have this really thorny question of how do I deliver public services on private property? Who owns yeah. the network? Yeah, what's your opinion on that? Um, well, it depends on the type of type of, of building and it depends on the type of, well, the, and the country you're in, and again, um, negotiating power. So I remember talking at a, an event a while back and they, they had... Uh, a hotel CIO, hotel chain CIO in Asia, who said, "Yeah, the funny thing is, in I think he said it was in Hong Kong, the network operators pay him, and in Thailand, he has to pay the network operators, and he couldn't work out, well, you know, why, it, why it's, why so, it's different. so different." Yeah. But what what I, what's definitely happening is a whole new breed of what are called neutral host providers. A neutral host is a shared network a wholesale shared network. And there's also, you could argue the same in, in the, it's essentially the equivalent of, a, of a, a, a neutral neutral co-location or data center company, but for a mobile network. Sometimes owning their own spectrum and allowing essentially the main carriers to roam onto them. Sometimes doing, you know, perhaps sort of small cell as a service. And that, that gets... Uh, uh, well, an emerging, yeah. you know, at least in the US, unlicensed spectrum like CBRS. Yeah. Uh, CBRS is a really interesting one. Uh, and the other option is to have the this sort of disaggregated radio network where you might have a shared antenna, but each of the operators brings its own virtualized baseband or, you know, control unit for the radio. And there's all sorts of interesting new models emerging. You, know, you might have utility companies doing it, property companies doing it. There's local authorities and municipalities are saying, maybe we can get millimeter wave spectrum and as a neutral host service down the high street as a municipality, probably in, you know, in conjunction with a tower company. One other benefit here, incidentally, and this is me being a bit cynical, is uh, I do notice that when a number of the carriers have spun off their tower companies and, uh, or sold them to a tower company, about a week later, they put a um, press release out saying, we've hit our CO2 targets five years early. Oh, it's amazing. And I think it's because, as well as outsourcing their towers, they're outsourcing their uh, carbon footprint as well. Yeah, that's interesting. So in the US, there seems to be an institutional resistance to shared infrastructure. Yes. You know, and, and it 
I think that's eventually going to sort its, sort its way out when the dust settles in, the, in accounting, but that may take some time. Are you seeing it different at different parts of the world? Yeah. And also a lot of it is to do with the fact that in the US, each carrier has got a really unusual mixed bag of spectrum. So they don't necessarily want to have their towers and radios in the same place necessarily because they're, they've they got a different, a different sort of RAN strategy. And some also, some of them own a lot of their own fiber as well. And, and also, to be honest, population density is, is lower. So it's easier to build independent towers for each carrier in, in a lot of parts of the US. Elsewhere in the world, there's a huge move to different forms of shared network, but especially because with 5G, well, two things happen with 5G. First off, the higher band spectrum means that it's almost impossible for every carrier to build out its own network, even if it wanted to, particularly at millimeter wave. <laughs> Let alone if there's enough fiber in the ground there's or enough, enough money fiber, to do it. There's not enough lampposts, you know, all this. Um, particularly on uh, I got a potential client I was talking to that's um, looking at doing this as a railway provider. And they're saying, well, you know, for millimeter wave, each of the, the carriers would have to ha- have cell towers outside of the fence, or, so outside of the railway land, and it probably wouldn't have the range. So actually, what you do as a railway company is you run your own neutral host network down the track side, partly for your own use, and partly you, you onboard the MNOs as well, the mobile operators, as, as tenants. So you've got all sorts of different sectors here. There's indoor, there's dense metro areas, road and rail side, uh, and also rural. And rural is one where obviously a lot of countries are, are concerned about digital inclusion and network connectivity for you know rural communities and so on, and also for agriculture and IoT. And there may not be enough people to justify any individual uh, operator building out a good network, but pooling all their requirements, they might be able to have a shared one. Either one of them shares and the others act as sort of um, tenants on on the carrier number one's network, or to avoid the debate. You know, a third party sets up as a neutral provider, which could be a tower company or, as I say, the municipality. There's a couple of ones I know uh, here that are almost like sort of almost like villages running their own cellular networks and and uh, having interconnect agreements. Uh, and I, I know a couple of companies and individuals who are really pushing that model. Yeah, it could be for like an island off Scotland, for example, where they run their own network and uh, the other carriers um, roam onto it or interconnect their core networks. If you were a uh, a betting man, mm-hmm. uh, and I don't know if you are or not, where where would you where do you think this is going to net out? Everything is going to be a messy hybrid. I think that the, <laughs> if, if you're in, uh, and I, I think the thing which so wins, direct, disruptive it, dean is going to be in business for a long time. Yeah, it's it, everything is going to be deeply inelegant and based on sort of midterm pragmatism, messed up by acquisitions. There's going to be awkwardness around local authorities. Yeah, it's it's going to be messy. Maybe in some markets where you've got a greenfield network, perhaps a dish in the US or Reliance Geo in India, Rakuten in Japan. Rakuten, yeah. And then perhaps in China where you can, you know, they can mandate. Sure, the government just yeah. tells you what to do. Yeah, and particularly for things like the government does tell, for example, building owners, you must have this indoor coverage solution. Everywhere else, you've got this real mess of overlapping jurisdictions and property rights and existing incumbency and long- competitors wanting to get into it. I mean, what happens if Amazon buys Dish, right? Yeah. And and then the other thing is, of course, is is the downside of democracy is that every four years someone gets in and wants to change everything. Halfway through, people, whatever the last competitive competition authority was saying was acceptable or not right. acceptable, in four years' time, you can bet it's all going to change. 
Right. See, see high speed rail in the U.S. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I want to switch topics a little. You kind of lit up a little when we mentioned CBRS. You mm. said, "Oh, CBRS is really interesting." So, can we? Can you tell us a little bit what makes it so interesting to you? Right. So, I'm I'm really interested in availability of localized spectrum, radio spectrum for to build 4G or 5G networks. Yeah. You know, historically, most spectrum bands suitable for uh, mobile have been awarded on either a national basis or in North America on fairly large areas. CBRS brings in a couple of different innovations. First is quite small-sized licensed chunks of spectrum for particular geographic areas. And we're, we're having this conversation just after the, the auction for that chunk of licensed spectrum kicked off. But the other interesting thing is, is there's another tier of this band, which is it's sort of a bit like Wi-Fi. It's not quite as unlicensed and permissionless and everyone can use it, but it's open access as long as you check with a database function called um, uh, a SAS or a Spectrum Access System. Essentially, you know, you... you, you avoid conflicts, basically. Yeah, avoid conflicts. And yeah, and in particular, there's the, the incumbent networks, which is primarily the US Navy, but also some other uh, some others. And you essentially, your small cell says, can I use this bit of Spectrum at this time, at this power level? Uh, and the database says, yeah, go ahead. And, you know, and clearly, if you're in the middle of Utah, there's not too many aircraft carriers, so you should be good. Yeah, that's really interesting because the potential users are five or six different categories. The existing mobile carriers might use it to, to supplement their existing spectrum in high-density locations. Fixed wireless access wireless service providers might use it, particularly for rural coverage, to build out uh, fixed 4G or 5G networks. The cable companies are interested in it to build wireless, almost like extensions to their cable and fiber plant. And then enterprises are interested in it because um, let's say I've got a massive oil field somewhere and I've got you know 500 oil wells um, and there's frankly no one lives there. This means that I could have my own private wireless or wireless network in protected spectrum, collecting data and doing all my IoT and environmental protection run on my private cellular network without having to go to the carrier and pay per month or, or per gigabyte. And there's a bunch of other use cases for municipalities, you know, this uh, neutral host and indoor model and sort of shared access license, I was saying, maybe you're an airport authority, you want to run a private cellular network where the airlines and the oil companies and the catering companies and the maintenance companies, they're your tenants and you act as a, a little local airport service provider or a port authority for instance. So it's been really interesting to see who ends up with both the licensed bits of this band, but also the, this unlicensed uh, section. And to me, this is one of the leading examples around the world of this local wireless spectrum program. The UK, Germany, Japan, France, and a number of other countries also have something vaguely similar. So if you are an airport authority in lots of countries now, you can build your own private 4G or 5G network. Some of the bands and some of the rule sets are more in tune to, to this fixed wireless access model. Some are more aimed at, say, in Germany for industrial companies wanting to have a private 5G network to run their robots and industrial automation systems in the factory. France tends to be more aimed at replacing sort of old, older sort of two-way radio systems like uh, Tetra for critical communications at, at ports and airports. But there's a lot of innovation going on. And so we're going from a world where 
there were, now today there's probably about 800 mobile carriers around the world. If we had this conversation in five years' time, we, there may well be 8,000 or even 80,000. Or eight. Um, uh, possibly you might. What you probably have is you probably have eight big ones and 8,000 small ones. Yes, right. Interesting. The long tail will be really long. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I saw an example, a demo someone did where they got a, a, a local spectrum uh, license from Ofcom here here in the UK, set up for an office in the center of, of London. It took them two weeks to get a spectrum license for, I think it was like 10 megahertz spectrum, which is enough to run a, you know, a basic 4G network. And it cost them essentially $100 for the spectrum license. That's incredible. To, uh, and they had a small cell, a little tiny core network running on a a server the size of a shoebox, and they were demonstrating using, you know, fresh out of the box Android phones with their own, you know, network name on a licensed local licensed network to make phone calls. Now, that's not you know the world's most amazing thing, but the the speed that it took them two weeks to get the license and a hundred bucks. Yeah, so, it's all, it's almost like the cellular network could. Yeah you know, in some future state, be like infrastructure as a service. Yeah, or, or frankly, it, it, the aim is, for some people I speak to, is to make it easy to set up as a Wi-Fi network. Now, obviously, a Wi-Fi network at one level, you can just go to the store and buy a, a, a Wi-Fi access point. Or in an enterprise, it's a bit more of a sophisticated, you have a professional installation. But if you can, and in fact, a lot of the Wi-Fi integration and installation companies are trying to do CBRS accreditation because what that means is they could come up to your office building and potentially put in a private cellular network as well as a private Wi-Fi network. And that then you could use that for different sets of, of use cases. So you know, Wi-Fi obviously gets congested. It's very good for certain things, less good for others. But imagine you have a, I don't know, a retailer you want to offer Wi-Fi or, or an airport, you want to offer Wi-Fi to your customers and maybe for your, I don't know, display panels, but you would really like to have your payment terminals you're, um, running on a private cellular network. Right. Because you, they're less prone to... You don't want to ever stop collecting money because someone's playing Fortnite. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there's various reasons why you might want to do both. And so what I see is a future world where, particularly indoors, you'll have indoor Wi-Fi, uh, for laptops and for screens and for you know voice assistants and all of the devices which are Wi-Fi powered, you will want to have public mobile networks working indoors. Right. So my phones work inside a your building. Phone works sure. And your visitors' phones, so you don't know what network. Yes. And then it, for some locations, you might want to have a private cellular network. Right. For your IoT devices or your yeah. cash registers or yeah. Or all sorts of things. You maybe yeah. it's a yeah. casino and you want to run your security cameras and your gaming machines on that so more perhaps more critical things it might have a better range but yeah and and then the interesting question is where edge compute fits in this and particularly in industrial environments there's an argument in let's say a factory to have your robots and your industrial automation systems and your quality inspection cameras connected to your private cellular network and then the question is where do you do the i don't know the video analytics for the welding machine to to work out if a weld is good or bad do you run that on a server in your factory or in the parking lot or nearby you know a few milliseconds up the road and then it's going to depend on the on the use case and the type of site it is yeah. Well, in fact, you know, it's interesting. One of the one of the emerging use cases that I'm seeing in our business is what we've started to call near prem, mm -hmm. and this is this idea that if you're building all these data centers and networks, you know, out in the field, 
you could draw a 50 kilometer ring around every data center and identify all the factories and whatnot. And so you look at a, at a factory saying, well, I, I, I need discrete latency because I'm driving a robotic arm or, or something, but, you know, but maybe it's three milliseconds and not 60 microseconds. And I can actually, I don't have to drop a data center in my parking lot. I can put some servers in a co-location facility and have a direct fiber run. And that's becoming a really, really interesting use case that I'm seeing a lot of demand for. Are you seeing things yeah, like that? Yeah, and I think this this sweet spot of sort of 50, 100 kilometers, something like that. Uh, and that, interestingly, that also works with some carriers in countries, you know, say in Europe, where the size of the country means that you can essentially cover a country with 10 or 20 data centers. That starts to become more of a, an opportunity for service providers. Now, obviously, there's some questions there, which is if I've got a, you know, a, a multi-billion dollar factory, I don't want to run the risk of a fiber cut taking out my near-edge computing. But if I'm a small, a smaller facility, then maybe I can have a fiber and I have a 5G fixed wireless as backup or something like that as a failover. Yeah. And so I think that it's going to depend on the application, but I can certainly see that near-prem makes a lot of sense. It also makes sense if you are, let's say, a retailer that has 10 stores in a city. You don't want to have to have each one having... Yeah, why each. would you put a, put a server farm in each store? Well, and the other, there's other two other use cases that, that, I've, that I've seen, uh, which is so hospitals and um, venues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when a, when a venue opens up for the public, the ability to access server equipment on site goes way down. It becomes very a security issue, whether it's a, a motor raceway or a baseball stadium. And hospitals, I mean, you can see with COVID-19, like you can't get in there often cases. And so having it, you know, quote unquote, off-site but nearby, or having an alternative offsite, you know, provides potentially some access that you wouldn't nor- normally be able to have in emergency conditions. Yeah, that, that certainly makes sense. I mean, there's, there's a lot of, of you know, sensitive sites. Now, it depends. The more sen- the most sensitive will probably still want on-prem if it's, I don't know, military or something like that. But there's probably other ones which are, I don't know, it could be smart cities. It, yeah, and, and particularly with, as you say, the, the pandemic and what happens in the future if there's another wave. You don't want to have to have your compute resource off limits or needing certification or a piece of paperwork from someone who's working from home and who isn't available. Yeah, you went, you, and this, this is, I actually talked to a couple of um, data center companies recently who are saying the problem they have at the moment is there's lots of demand for new data center capacity, whether that's hyperscale or small scale, but they need various bits of paper to go and have a permit to, you know, send an excavator out to dig up the ground to install something but the town hall is shut and everyone's working from home and actually there's all these sort of administrative bottlenecks on it so yeah the more you can do things off-prem automate them and there's going to be some glitches i think that makes a lot of sense and and i I like this idea of of near-prem because that's also potentially a good meeting point or meet me point for all the different carriers as well. It certainly is. Yeah. And and, and this is what there's was, there was a post I did, a blog post I did. Well, and the cloud providers. Yeah. Question then is the assumption in the mobile industry is that the edge goes in the network, as we were saying before, whether it's for offload or anything else or a mech node. I actually think that possibly the network goes in the edge. And actually, what you might well find is these localized data centers that have chunks of each of many different network operators' infrastructure in a a neutral colo. And so it's almost like turns the paradigm around. It's not necessarily what 
I think people in the telecoms industry would like to hear because although it's less these days, a couple of years ago, I heard people in the mobile industry saying, oh, we can create a distributed quasi-AWS right. with, with their own edge. <laughs> with no developers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was unconvinced by it. But I, I, I mean, and I think this is an interesting question here. Is for, for, I mean, a lot of my clients are, are in telecoms. And I think that they will end up being both sellers and buyers of edge compute. And I think that, yes, I don't that's, think- that's a great point. Yes. Why, why would I want to own servers when I can lease them from Amazon? Yeah. And depending what it's for, where they are, you know, whether it's for the bits of the, the network which really need to have them owning it, or whether it's for running their billing system. And actually, you know, I, I can quite imagine companies running their customer care software on public cloud. And so I think that the interesting thing, this goes across the board for lots of other things, is that the telecoms industry has to wake up to this idea that actually there's a marketplace. And sometimes it makes sense to be on the buying side and sometimes on the selling side. That is a really insightful way of looking at it. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because again, I'm sure you have an opinion about it. If you look over the, the last decade, the early part of the last decade, the telcos have been licking their wounds over the OTT providers and the cloud providers in particular. Like we're just dumb bit pipes and when we roll out 5G, no way are we going to be dumb bit pipes again. And that created a lot of tension between the cloud providers and the telcos. But at least in the US, We've recently, you know, in the last 12 months, seen a lot of partnerships between the cloud providers and the telcos. Well, when I look at, say, I mean, so you're thinking of things like, imagine like Amazon Wavelength, AWS Wavelength and their partnership with uh, Verizon. Verizon, Verizon, right, and right. And AT&T's partnership with Azure, Azure and yeah. I mean, that makes sense until you suddenly, when you, I saw a presentation recently on AWS's edge strategy and they put up a chart on one of their events and they have like 10 different edge products and services of which wavelength is one of them. And so essentially they're covering all the bases. And so, you know, there will be some developers for some locations in some places that want to have something inside a 5G network, but there's others who will want to have an on-prem device. There's some, they've got some real-time operating system that you can do in a silicon level right up to the, the sort of just standard availability zones or increasing their, their reach on data centers. So I think that those hyperscale companies, they are doing everything. But if you actually look at the portfolio, they're looking at going, you know, maybe it'll take off. But it's not their only, it's not this strategic, this is our sole bet on edge. It's one of 10. Yeah, that's really interesting. Well, and I also think the telcos have realized that while they may have their own, let's call it a cloud, so the ability for third parties to deploy workloads, Mm -hmm. that part of what they need to do to be successful is to deliver all the applications that their end users want. And you can't ignore the 10 million developers that want to write for the major clouds and aren't going to write for no. Verizon's cloud or, yeah, or absolutely. Yeah. You know, some I, other cloud. And I think this is this is the other thing is that yeah, if you're looking at, I don't know, an industrial company, they've got a massive sort of IT fleet of applications and services. And some of their individual workloads in some of their applications will need to work at the edge, but others will be analytics, storage, AI, you know, it's the R&D function that needs to store its three-dimensional models Yeah, that perhaps doesn't need to be edge-based. And they're not going to sort of orient their entire IT development around, environment around the, the, the handful of workloads that happen to need this capability. You know, they're, they're the adjuncts, as, you know, they're, they're mighty important, but you're not going to um, use that as the, if you like, the tail that wags the dog. And I think that some bits of the telecoms industry I'm speaking to do get that now. 
And I think that you're seeing those partnerships. And I think that what you end up with is the operators will have these partnerships. And I suspect they'll end up with multiple partnerships, just the same yeah, way they have I think they have to. I mean, you, you can't ignore all the apps that are on <laughs> Azure just because you have a partnership with Amazon. Well, and also this brings us back to, you know, our imagined future state where you have these neutral facilities and you've got one rack with the Telco's one's equipment, another rack with Telco two's equipment, and another rack with Amazon's equipment, another rack with Azure's equipment, and then you've got this, you know, software-based interconnect that is allowing them to peer or or exchange data, whether it's a paid relationship or a settlement-free relationship, and allow for very, very low latency exchange at the edge. Yes. And in fact, you, not just them, you may also find there's enterprises and you might find that it's a, a large car manufacturer who's saying, well, actually, you know, we want to have our own connectivity or a utility company or, yeah, so there's actually uh, our own SaaS in those locations. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. Or, or particularly some of these, these companies who are getting CBRS licenses, they're telcos too. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's this, this idea of sort of legacy spectrum privilege, if you like, where there's this assumption that just because you've been running mobile networks in perpetuity, you are entitled to all of the connectivity and the cloud functions. And actually, well, we, we, may, we may end up in a, in a world where, where if you know, CBRS shared spectrum works at scale, which it looks like it will based on the test, mm-hmm. that we may wish that all the spectrum was treated like that. And I don't know, we might, it might eminent domain it back with the pay everybody, but the government might repurchase the spectrum and make it shared. Possibly. In fact, the, the, the UK is doing something like that, which it, it is a, there's some approach, which is it's a bit like use it or lose it. Yes, right. Like water rights in the US. Or use it or let someone else borrow it in the meantime, which is, you know, if, you, if you're running a wind farm on a remote hilltop in Wales and you want to connect your wind turbines and none of the carriers, although they in theory have national licenses for bits of spectrum, none of them have built out coverage there. You can actually go to the regulator saying, can I have it? And there's actually now a process by which that secondary authorization, which is another form of the infrastructure sharing in a way, yeah. can operate. So I think you'll, you'll see that as a sort of an interim stage. I, I'm, I'm not sure that we're going to end up with this sort of you know, libertarian ideal of everything becoming spe- you know, spectrum as a service. Yeah, I, th- I think the lobbyists of the telcos will have an opinion on this. <laughs> but, but I do see that a number of companies that are, are moving towards that way of, of having spectrum as a service and perhaps dynamic spectrum databases and online allocations yeah, I don't think we need. I don't think we need like options. Well, we've market. massively reallocated spectrum in the U.S. You look at when the migration to HDTV. I mean, yeah, we, and again with C-band coming up, which is where essentially the government has gone to, or the, initially the satellite industry came to the FCC saying, "Hey, we reckon we can rejuggle our spectrum use and then." sell the rest of it and give us $10 billion. And the FCC says, good idea, but we're not paying you that much. I, I paraphrase, but that's that's roughly how it, how, it, how it's going. And so I think the satellite industry got ahead of the curve on that, of realizing that it can almost unilaterally decide to sort of reorganize. The, the military um, and government in a, lot, a number of countries are doing that. And there's various ways that different administrations can you know, incentivize this by essentially making government departments pay for the spectrum they use, which tends to make them a lot more efficient in how, how it happens. Yeah. So I have one last question, Dean, and then we can wrap. So something you mentioned earlier that I think very few people will pick up on, but I'd like to, to double click on it. You mentioned MEC. And it started as mobile edge computing, and now it's multi-access edge computing, mm-hmm. uh, which is an interesting shift. So w- what do they mean by multi-access, and how does 5G relate to wireline? 
Right. Because I think of it as a wireless technology, and we almost always talk about it as a wireless technology. How, how, do that, how does that all fit together? Well, a lot of it comes down to a lot of the carriers around the world are mobile and fixed providers, and they are trying to create, irrespective of edge computing, they're trying to create converged services. So let's say I am Telefonica in Spain, and I want to provide a mobile video streaming service both to my home users on home broadband and to their mobile devices. And yeah, maybe there's a bunch of other f- uh, features around smart home or security cameras, or I do a deal for, yeah, I don't know, video doorbells or whatever it is. And so then I want to have some form of compute platform, firstly, which is likely to be physically located in my local or city level you know, sometimes it's called metro service nodes, which essentially is like is like a, a central office plus a mobile aggregation phys- in, in one physical site. And so then at that point, um, they think, well, it, we'd love to have compute in that city-level facility, not just for the mobile traffic being aggregated, but also for the, the, the fixed broadband. And while we're at it, can we use the same core network architecture for fixed and mobile? So I think that that, that trend towards service convergence is a much bigger trend than edge computing is. And to some extent, that comes first because it's about the access network. It's the people, you know, if you, if you look at where the CapEx goes in a fixed or a mobile network, and certainly a converged one, it's the radio network and it's digging up the road to put fiber in. So those groups, to some extent, drive the architecture for everything else. And if they're putting all of their stuff in a, in a multi-access city edge node, that's a sensible place to put your edge compute as well. And also, to be honest, a question I've, I've asked for, for ages is, if mobile edge computing is going to be such a big deal, why don't we see fixed edge computing already? There's tons. Well, we are seeing it. We are we seeing are it. But you're right. It's new. But, but, it's new. Yeah. Yeah. But no one's been talking about fixed edge yeah. computing. Well, for, for years it was called on-site computing. Yeah. 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 But uh, yeah. But but also the, the the near the near edge. Yeah. If you look at all, you know, what are the things? You know, it's, it's all the industrial companies. The most enterprises have fi- one or two fibers into the building. And you would have thought if, if, if this millisecond latency thing was such a big deal, they would have been doing it 10 kilometers up the road for the last decade, but they haven't been. Well, I think the catalyst of the cloud providers making it easy to run workloads in those locations could radically transform it. Yes. But it's a, it's, a provoca- it's a provocative question. It's a provocative question. Um, hey, Dean, you know, th- this has been one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had so far in this podcast. I really appreciate you coming on. I would definitely like to have you on again in a little bit uh, to like catch up and, and chat about stuff. This has been terrific. Uh, before we close, how, how can people find you online? The easiest way is on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Twitter, I'm Disruptive Dean, or on LinkedIn, I'm usually talking about various things, but you can add me, and if you're in the industry, I'll, I'll connect with you and uh, via that route. Also, my website is deanbubbly.com, but I, I don't update it very often. But yeah, Twitter and LinkedIn, probably the easiest. Awesome. Yeah, well, thank you for joining us, Dean. Thanks. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven, Vapor.io, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, Zenlayer, and NetFoundry. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment to subscribe, rate five stars and review, and share the show with someone you know who might enjoy it. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. NetFoundry connects edge compute islands with a simple, software-only solution. 
In minutes, over any internet connection, the Edge Compute Island gets zero trust, high performance networking. It is a turnkey solution with the infrastructure delivered by NetFoundry as network as a service and available in partnership with leading MSPs, SIs, and Edge data centers. Each network is fully programmable via simple web console or by powerful APIs and pre-integrated with every major cloud provider. Go to netfoundry.io to learn more.